thank you to the team again for leading us and uh, it is great to be bringing the word of God to you again and uh, today um, I'm going to focus on restoration Uh, and uh, for some of you that'll be a heart close to your topic depending on what your hobbies are but uh, stories of restoration when it comes to human lives it seems uh, are becoming harder to find in today's world. Seems today that if something is broke, you throw it out. That if it doesn't work anymore, might be a marriage, might be a mower, it just gets ditched and uh, goes by the wayside. It seems like we fix or repair or restore less and less when it comes to the things that occur and that we use in our life. Uh, One of my... uh, favourite possessions used to be a Black & Decker drill uh, that uh, I didn't drill a lot of holes with it but I used it as a screwdriver. Very exciting stuff uh, for a weekend handyman like myself. Uh, However, apparently I didn't use it enough and uh, found one day that the batteries in it no longer took a charge. No matter how long I left them on the charger, no matter how long, how many volts I put into them, they just did not work. So I thought, oh, well, I better try to find some more batteries for my Black & Decker drill. And um, uh, spoke. I rang up someone and, and said, look, I need to get some batteries. How much might they be and, and where might I get them? And the, and the guy goes, nah. And I'm thinking like, what, what does that mean? Am I not allowed to do that? Is the, do you have to have a licence? He goes, no, no. He goes, you don't want to do that. And I'm, I'm saying, why? And he said, well, uh, you can go down to Bunnings now and buy for yourself a new Black & Decker drill with two batteries, 12 volt, for less money than what you are going to pay for two new batteries for your drill. And I'm just thinking, what is the point of that? I want want this drill to live. I want life batteries for it. I want to restore it. I want to redeem it. And you're saying, no, you can't. It's just not economic sense and we're not even going to sell your batteries. So... uh, Out it went. Uh, I said, well, what can I do with this drill? Can I bring it to you and give it to you? I want it to have some purpose for it. And he said, yeah, bring it down. We'll take it. I don't know whatever happened to it. It could have ended up in landfill, perhaps with the batteries. Hopefully not. But anyway, there was no life for the Black & Decker drill. It was not going to be restored. It was disposable. Uh, Economically, it didn't make sense. Uh, It went out. Uh, However... Despite the fact that we've become more of a disposable society these days, we're always captured and enamoured by stories of restoration, stories of redemption. Who has been following the uh, account of the young soccer team stuck in the caves in Thailand with their coach? Uh, You know, uh, I mean... People are in peril every day, but yet we're captured by this idea that these little guys need rescuing and the efforts that are going on by all these people and all these equipment that's being stored up to get them out of there. Judy and I update each other every time we get a new bit of news about what's happening with these boys. We're just drawn into the idea of salvation and rescue and restoration. Uh, even if it's not stories of human lives, whenever we see something that's been restored, whether it's a a piece of furniture or a classic car or something like that, 
Uh, we, we're captured by it. There is something that once, you know, was old and broken down or decrepit and it's been given new life. And we're drawn into stories about that. And I started to think, well, what is it, you know, that causes a person to restore something? Why does a person bother with the time? Why do hundreds of people gather around a cave mouth and do all these things at times, putting their own life in danger to rescue these boys? What's, what's the factor that makes that happen? And I think the word that comes down to it is value. How much value do we place in an object to make us want to restore it? How much do we care about that thing or that person that makes us want to put all that effort into it? And when we value something highly, whether it's an artefact or a person or whatever, we will tend to protect it, look after it, and if it needs a bit of help getting by or coming back to its former glory or living again, we'll put in that time and that effort into that particular thing and restore it and redeem it and rescue it and give it that life that we think it should have. Charles Swindle tells the story of an angry man who rushed through uh, the Rieks Museum in Amsterdam. If I've mispronounced that, let me know afterwards. And he reached Rembrandt's famous painting, The Night Watch. However, he wasn't there to look at it. For some reason, he took out a knife and started to slash it repeatedly right there and cut it to bits. A short time later, another distraught hostile man slipped into St Peter's Cathedral in Rome with a hammer and began to smash Michelangelo's beautiful sculpture, the Pieta. Two cherished arts of work were severely damaged uh, by these two acts of crime and what was the response of the officials in both of those places? Oh, well, bad luck. <laughs> Chuck it out and go in with the Black & Decker batteries. No. No, they didn't. They, these were highly valued, priceless works that had been disfigured and maimed. So instead, because of the value and the history and the, the heritage attached to them, they got a team of experts together and went right back to work with the utmost care and precision and made every effort to restore those treasures. And they're still in existence today because of that work. They weren't thrown out. They were in fact restored by the efforts of many people. So restoring furniture and cars and works of art is one thing, uh, but what about people? Where do we go when we need some restoration work? Maybe for some of you, uh, this is a serious issue. You know full well that you need help, that things, aren't, uh, that things in your life aren't right uh, and that you're in fact crying out for it. Or maybe for some of you, uh, things aren't going too bad, but if you're honest, you'd agree, I'm a work in progress. Uh, I, need a bit of, I need a bit of help. I, I, I need a bit of restoration and recovery and redemption. And unless we're completely deceived, all of us here today have, have an awareness that we're not perfect, that we're, that we're not complete, that we're still uh, a work in progress, that we're still needing something uh, to, to help us on the way and to restore us and redeem us. Um, and 
uh, that can be whether you are someone who has said yes to Jesus, you've received his salvation, you describe yourself as a Christian, you've been born again. Uh, even in that process, you know that you're living in the in-between time. We're still not there yet. We still haven't arrived. We've made this great discovery about life and about Jesus, but we're still not finished. Uh, and uh, then again, if you're not in that space, if you wouldn't say you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you too have that sense, yeah, I'm, I'm, I haven't made it, I'm not there, I need something in my life today. So what the aim of this message for all of us, wherever you are on that continuum, is to introduce you or to remind you of Jesus Christ, the Master Restorer. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today, Jesus the Restorer. Now, you may or may not have thought of Jesus in that light. You might have heard other words like, you know, Redeemer, Rescuer or or Saviour, but maybe never Restorer in that sense. And I want to introduce a a concept to you uh, right alongside that right away. You are his great work of art. You are his damaged masterpiece. You are his broken sculpture. And Jesus is well aware of the needs that you have when it comes to redemption and rescue and restoration. And the good news is that he has attached high value to you. So therefore... When you go wrong or do wrong or are born wrong, he doesn't say, I'll just get another one. He doesn't say, well, we'll just ditch you. But instead he says, because of the value I've attached to you, then I will now set about putting into place, putting into the process my great restoration work in your life. Now, the question for all of us always becomes, will we cooperate? Will we welcome it? Will we invite it? Will we allow Jesus, the restorer, to begin work, to continue work in our lives? Will we say yes to it? Will we receive that attention and that work in our lives? Because Jesus is absolutely serious about outworking it in your life. And you might be a person who think, mate, this, this process is taking a long time. <laughs> I can't see a lot of progress. I, I actually, I think Jesus might have gone on strike. You know, he's, he's, he's moved on to another project. Is he going to keep going? Will he continue with this? And I really want to encourage you that, yes, he will, and that he's intent on completing his process. Many of you know the scripture Ephesians 2.10, which says we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And we're going to spend a little time talking about the implications of that. Yes, those of you who have studied the scriptures would also maybe be aware that the word workmanship is equally possibly able to be translated into masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. 
The scripture tells us that you're made in God's image. I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself of a painting as a painting or a sculpture. Some of you might have imagined yourself as Michelangelo's David. Um, just anyway, uh, if you just work with that for a minute. But you know, you could be a fine specimen of humanity with a wonderful physique, and you do think that you've made in God's image. Uh, and you can imagine yourself standing there in, in wherever Michelangelo's David is. And, and liking that. Good name, good name. I'm, I'm working with it. But anyway, you may not have thought of yourself as a masterpiece. In fact, the thought might be horrid to you. But the point that we're trying to make here today is that you were created in God's image. So when it came to artwork, you bear the image of the creator of God. And sometimes we're thinking that and hearing that, we're thinking, I shouldn't think about myself like that. I, I shouldn't equate myself with Jesus. I, now, he's there. I'm here. I, I'm, I'm a used battery. <laughs> I'm on the scrap heap, you know. The idea that we would equate ourselves in that way, and in one sense, that's absolutely true and right, but in the other When God made his creation, he says, I'm going to set people in creation, as the head of creation, in my image. They become almost like mini versions of me as they take authority over the earth and as they govern it, not in his purposes for evil plans and outcomes, but for good. We stand in God's place in this creation and have influence over it and each other that he has delegated to us. Now, we all know with the inset, the invention of sin, if you like, that that's gone astray, that people are greedy, that we exploit each other and the earth and we need restoration. But we've been given this heritage and this image, that this stamp upon us that causes us to have incredible value in God's sight and in God's eyes and an incredible mission and ministry in this world. We have things to do and not just spiritual things, but things in relation to the way this place lives. I know we've talked before about uh, you know, people's jobs and, and sometimes, you know, you might think, well, you know, that's not much of a job in God's eyes and he doesn't really care about that. Do you think God wants your job done well or poorly? Those of you building buildings for people to live in, does God want that to be well built or does he not care? Is he happy for the ceiling to fall in on the five people when they're watching the World Cup? I mean... It's very easy to demonstrate that God wants the work of this world to be done well. God wants uh, creation to be well governed and to be well administered, if you like. And you are God's workmanship. You're his masterpiece and you're amazing. I often uh, think about a couple of analogies that I heard when I was doing the creative living course at Tabor, famous uh, subject created by Pastor Barry Chant, wrote a book about it. And the analogy of the coin, like a 10 cent piece, smashed, run over by tractors, dirty, 50 years old, 
you know, looking cruddy and you look at it and you think, mate, what is that? And yet it's still worth 10 cents or 20 cents. Why? Because it still has the image of the queen upon it. It still has value because the image and the stamp remains. And it's the same with us. We might feel broken by life, run over by circumstances, dirty in need of a wash, but you still bear the image of God upon you that gives you value and worth in the Creator's eyes. You are legal tender when it comes to the transaction of restoration and redemption. So no matter, even though we're feeling flat or we look horrible or we're just having a bad time, we bear the image like a currency that gives us value in God's sight. Another one similar to that, uh, I remember, <laughs> this brings me back to a Father's Day. Uh, sorry, Beck, just looking at you getting ready to be a mum again. And I'm thinking of being a dad. My son, when he was a little fella, I barrack for the Adelaide Crows. It's just pray for me afterwards. They need some restoration. Um, and uh, so Josh, one Father's Day, gave me a crow's mug. Adelaide crows on it. And I'm thinking, that's nice, you know. Not sure what I'm going to do with that. It's a bit of, you know, crow's mug. Good, mate. And uh, I thought, I'll just leave it at home. You know, and I don't want to take it at work. It looks a bit, you know, I'm bad for the crows. But you don't have to, you know, to sort of advertise it. And as I was leaving for work on the Monday after Father's Day, Josh came up and said, Where's your mug? I'm thinking, man, I felt like, I just feel like a sinner. Oh, sorry, mate, I forgot it. So I grabbed it and took it to work and it stayed at work ever since and it became known as Dave's Crow's Mug and the crow's emblem on it faded eventually and it got dirty and it needed a wash. But it's still my mug. It still belongs to me. And we're sometimes a bit faded and we're dirty and we're in need of a wash and restoration but we've still belong to God. We're still his possession and he takes incredible care and time and attention to outwork his salvation process, his restoration process in us. And sometimes we don't cooperate. Sometimes we roll around in the mud. Sometimes, you know, we frustrate that process, but... God's image is upon us and, and we are his workmanship, his masterpiece and he is outworking that restoration process. He values us and he takes care of us. When it comes to the ministry of Jesus Christ, the book of Isaiah has some interesting things to say. In fact, you know, if you're ever needing a bit of a G up in terms of what Jesus does and who he is, just look through the incredible prophecies made about the ministry of Messiah 2,000 years at least before his advent. One of them says this, a bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. Now I'm not going to launch into an explanation of why bruised reeds and smouldering wicks were broken and snuffed out usually, but what I will do is say to you that the emphasis behind this Verses that Jesus does not discard the broken. Jesus does not dispatch the bruised. Jesus does not ignore and overlook the damaged. 
but instead takes tender care of them and rejuvenates and restores them. A better way of explaining this is found in the message from Isaiah 42, which reads like this, and I'll I'll read it to you over a few screens. It says, Take a good look at my servant. I'm backing him to the hilt. He's the one I chose, and I couldn't be more pleased with him. I've bathed him with my spirit, my life, and he'll set everything right among the nations. This ministry of setting things right, of, of restoring, of rescuing and redeeming. He won't call attention to what he does with loud speeches or gaudy parades. He won't brush aside the bruised and the hurt and he won't disregard the small and insignificant. But he'll steadily and firmly set things right. He won't tire out and quit. He won't be stopped until he's finished his work to set things right on earth. Far-flung oceans wait expectantly for his teaching. So Isaiah indicates to us that Jesus has this ministry of redemption and restoration, especially with those who would regard themselves as damaged and insignificant and in need of that work uh, at his hands. And that he will persist in it. He will go on with it. He won't retire from it. Isn't it good news that Jesus hasn't retired? We tire out, we retire, we lose energy at times. But Jesus doesn't quit with what he's doing on our behalf and in and through us. And sometimes our reaction to this is, yeah, well, okay, Jesus is the restorer, but he can't restore me. You don't know what I've been, what I've done or what I've been through. You don't know what's happened to me. And you might call that objection number one, that Jesus can't overcome what I've done or Jesus can't overcome what's been done to me. But yet we come up against promises like these in Romans 8 verse 28 that don't give us a lot of chance to sustain that objection. It says there, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Doesn't say God's responsible for all things or God initiates all things. That all it doesn't say that all things are good either, but it says that in all things God does work for the good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Now I believe God works in the life of everyone that some people are on their way towards Jesus right now because of the mission and ministry of the Holy Spirit, because of the prayers of believers. But we have this, what you might call, specific directed promise for those who say yes to him. In other words, you might say those who have said yes to his restoration work, those who are cooperating with his purposes, who've submitted to him. God then picks up circumstances and then employs them together to work together for our good so that we can't pick up anything and say, well, Lord, you know, look at this, Lord. You're not working for good here. You know, look at what happened this week. You can't be working for good there. And there's a tendency to pick stuff up and say, God, you're not working here. 
where we stare at the scripture and it stares back at us and says, in all things, God is working for good, that God is attempting to bring about uh, something good in our lives and in the overall good. So when we have this assurance that in whatever we experience, whatever we go through, whatever wherever we're at at the moment, God is somehow miraculously able to draw it together so that good is the outcome. And I know that tests us at times. I know at times we think, man, where is the good in this? It challenges us. It's a test of faith at that time to believe that. But as we cooperate with that uh, and as we work with that, God outworks this miracle in our life. And the call and the invitation to all of us is to say, Lord, I accept that promise. I receive that promise. I want your restoration work and redemption work to occur in my life. Lord, let it be, flow through me, and may that be so in my life and my experience. Um, I've got another story about another piece of artwork that this time was found uh, in an old uh, Scottish mansion. And the walls of one of the rooms are filled with sketches made by distinguished artists. It's quite a unique attraction and quite a very special place. But interestingly, these artworks began when a pitcher of soda water was accidentally spilled onto a freshly decorated wall in that house and it left an unsightly stain on the wall. So this wonderful piece of work and and, uh, decoration in the home and Somehow someone spilt some water on it and it had this stain on it. It was just like, Ugh, you know, that's bad luck. You know, what, what are we going to do with that? You know, should we knock it down and start again? Uh, and it was this big stain. But at the time uh, that this, was, this occurred, there was an artist called Lord Landseer and he was a guest at that house. And one day the family went outside to do some activities. He stayed behind and he looked at this stain on the wall and he thought, hmm, I reckon I can work with that. So he took out some charcoal and started sketching around it and whatever. And when the family came back and looked at it, what was an ugly stain on the wall had become a magnificent picture of a waterfall. That he'd looked at that and said, well, okay, that that was an accident. That was a problem. That looks like a stain. It's marred that wall, but... I can go to work on it and turn it into a masterpiece. So sometimes we're thinking, Lord, man, what a mess I've made. Lord, look at this disaster. And it, and it was a problem and it is wrong and it, it was a sin and it, it was evil and it did mar something good. All of those things are true. We're not walking around in fairyland de- denying that reality. But somehow God as artist and creator can take even a disfigurement, even uh, the marring of a life and turn it into something that is beautiful again. So we can't say to God who is the miracle worker par excellence, we don't, he's just beyond description the way that he turns things around the way that he turns things into beauty, the way that he turns chaos, which was our creation before it was brought together, into beauty. But yet he promises to do that work 
and to work in that way. So uh, God is able to do it when it comes to turning the, the bad things in our life into beautiful things, according to Romans 8.28. So objection one, objection number two to this process, we might say, I can't do it and I'm not sure even if I want to. So this is where we say, okay, God, you might be a miracle worker, but I'm on strike. And the challenge, the promise that deals with what's going on inside of us is from Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. You know, sometimes when I look at, you know, the things that I want to do or the things that I have done or, or just reflect on the way I'm feeling inside, I'm so glad that God is at work on the inside of me as well as on the outside. I'm so glad that God works on my will as well as on my ways that God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, is drawing me into cooperating with his restoration process. And he does this for all of us, in all of us, to all of us, so that we can be assured that he, it's not, he's helping us want to go in the right way. Now, how he does that and respects who we are and the decisions we make, I don't know. <laughs> he's a miracle worker. I don't know where the line is. Somehow he works in us and gets us to go in the right direction when we say yes to the Holy Spirit. Someone once said that in Jesus, God takes responsibility for our disobedience by dying on the cross. In the Holy Spirit, God takes responsibility for our obedience by coming to live inside of us and working to will and to act according to his good purpose. So whether you're... Uh, on the one hand saying, no, no, these circumstances disqualify me from restoration, or whether you're saying, well, I'd like the restoration, I reckon God can do it, but I don't even know if I want to be part of it. Wherever you stand in that place, God has a promise in the scripture that he will outwork his restoration in your life. And then the final objection, number three, might be, well, it's just taking too long. Like, okay, so you can work good in these circumstances. I accept that. And yeah, I might be interested in actually cooperating. But you know, it's taking a really long time. It's just going on forever and forever and forever. And sometimes we give up or we try to quit on something or on that restoration process because we just can't stand it any longer. We just can't be patient any longer. We just can't work with it any longer. But God's got a promise and a response for that. I want to share you an analogy first. Has anyone ever here ever heard of the Malaysian bamboo plant? One hand up the back. Thank you, David Fontaine. Uh, Will June Sutton. So there's two people that are going to know this analogy before I start. That's all right. Everyone else, it's going to be a good story and a surprise. In the first year that you plant the seed of the Malaysian bamboo plant, you water it, you fertilise it, you pray for it and you speak to it nicely like Prince Charles and it grows nothing in the first year. Nothing is visible 
above the surface in the first year. In the second year of the Malaysian bamboo plant, you water it, you feed it, you love it, you pray for it, you speak to it, and it grows nothing above the surface of the earth in the first year, in the second year. In the third year, you do the same things and you still see nothing above the ground. In the fourth year, after you've planted the Malaysian bamboo plant, four years of prayer, four years of fasting, four years of fertilising, watering, no sign of the plant above earth. Anyone involved in anything like that at the moment? In their life or in their circumstances or (laughs) any old thing like that? Sometimes we think, yeah, that, that sounds familiar. In the fifth year of the Malaysian bamboo plant, one day it sticks its little head above the earth and then grows 90 feet in 90 days. One foot of growth a day. Straight up and there it is. Now, why have I shared this little story about the Malaysian bamboo plant? To encourage you all that God has planted something in all of us. He's planted a seed in all of us. It's of the Holy Spirit that God has a plan and a purpose for you, that God is at work tending to that seed, encouraging that seed, fostering that seed, and at the given time, at the right moment, it emerges from that process and a fruit and a harvest results. Now, can I say, just wait five years and you'll see 90 feet of growth. I'm sure all the seeds are different. I'm sure some of them take longer. I'm sure some of, us, some of them don't grow as much. But just because something's been started and there's no visible action at this point in time doesn't necessarily mean that God made a mistake, that God isn't at work, that it's not going to happen and it'll never get here. But the Malaysian bamboo plant is an example from creation that shows that it's still going to happen according to the promises of God. 2 Peter 3 verses 8 and 9 say, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises under some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So God is at work And sometimes we often think he's taking too long. We want to give him some advice about the speed of things. But he is on a different schedule. He's looking at us in a different way. He's got plans and dreams for us that in some sense for him are not linear. They're not bound by time as such, even though we experience time. But he's looking at us his masterpiece and his great work of art and he knows at just the right time there are things that are going to come forward in your life. There are things that are just going to step forward and it's not a surprise to him. It's not a a mistake to him. Now where that fits in terms of the decisions we make and the path that we choose, 
Who really knows? All I do know is that at times, I these days know that I, I accept that God is guiding me, even though at times I think, wow, look at that decision. Wow, look at that choice. Look at the impact of that. You're thinking, that doesn't feel very organised. That doesn't feel very ordained. That doesn't feel very directed. And yet I know that even in the seed of what my life is or the soil of what my life is, that God is at work bringing together circumstances, growing things up in me and in others, and that his harvest will come to pass. It says in 1 Peter 5.10, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. Again, the use of that word restore, acknowledging suffering that at the time for the people that this was written to might have seemed incredibly challenging, incredibly difficult, never ending. Yet then this promise that he's going to make us strong, firm and steadfast. Is there anyone here who doesn't want to be strong, firm and steadfast? Is there anyone saying, I'm not really interested in that. I'd, I'd rather just flop about. I mean, we all want that and we have the promise that Jesus will do that for us. Okay, so the answers to the objections we've talked about this morning, God can restore us, God wants to restore us, God will restore us. He's at work. But the final question that I'm going to deal with before we close is what is he restoring us to? When we use that word restore, are we talking about going backwards? Are we talking about something that once happened that we're going back to? Does anyone here remember the good old days? The good old days. Can anyone give me the date of the good old days? No. (laughs) Well... Christopher Scase might agree, if only he could go back to the early 80s, Margaret. The good old days. That just made me think of the too good to be true mirage. Anyway, it doesn't matter. We never went to mirage and just as well, Margaret, because we would have went broke if we had invested in that. Now I'm going to to come back now to that. Right, what did I say? The good old days, right. The reason I asked the question in that way is that we all have this picture perhaps of when things were better. You know, when things were rosier. When, when, and sometimes when we think of restoration, we think, oh, God's going to take me back there. You know, I'm going to go backwards in life and go back to the good old days. But the truth is everyone's got a version of the good old days. Uh, all of us have it. We sort of think it might be back there. Sometimes very hard to pinpoint. And we think of restoration and what God is doing as perhaps a recapturing of something back here. But I... I want you to know that you have a stronger faith today than you did back then. That you are stronger and firmer and more steadfast today than you were back then. Don't you try and tell me otherwise. You are. And even though you might have been through some stuff, even though you might be in a tough spot at the moment, even though you might be struggling, you've gone forward since then. You've grown since then. Your, your Malaysian bamboo plant is it's happening. You are growing. And God's restoration is not some recreation of something that occurred back there. It's far better than that. 
We read in Isaiah 65, verse 17, this prophecy that behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Often we think and we have this picture about our creation and you know being new or new heavens. What does that look like? I mean, this is a pretty specky place, I find, although there are many things that are part of it that you think, wow, that's a bit tough. You know, those wildlife shows with all the animals eating each other. That was so cute. Now it's breakfast. You know, it's like our creation's amazing, but there's stuff in it that's just a bit, you know, it doesn't quite resonate right. But the prediction of Scripture is not, oh, I'm just going to restore it, but, but I'm going to recreate it, reimagine it. it. It'll be new. It, it'll be different. Uh, and this incredible promise is ours to see for all time. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So it's not he's a better version of himself or herself, we haven't sort of fixed these up, but he's been recreated in Christ. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 says, No eye has seen nor ear has heard. No mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. The promise is not about, oh, you know, you, we won't, you can't wait till we get you back to the good old days. You know, that's what God's plan is, some sort of think, version of what happened once upon a time. But it's something new. It's something beyond our current understanding, beyond our imagination, not a recreation of some distant memory, but what is to come. This is what God promises. And then finally, Revelation 21 verse 5, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write down these words because they are trustworthy and true. There's one of those promises again, folks, that reminds us that it's not some things, not a few things, but everything included us is made new as we submit and surrender to the activity of God. So my encouragement for you today, just before we pray, is to submit to that process. And you might say, well, what does that mean? Well, I believe that God builds momentum in our lives when we do the right thing and that when we're doing the wrong thing or doing the wrong or going the wrong way that he limits momentum for our sake and for the sake of others. So we need to submit ourselves, organise our time so that we can serve, organise our finances so that we can give, organise our spiritual diet so that we can grow like the Malaysian bamboo plant, organise our relationships so that we can love God first and foremost. When we submit and surrender to his ways, he is able to restore us and renew us into something that we've never, ever imagined or seen before. Let's close our eyes and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are a God of redemption, rescue and restoration. That even when things happen to us or we do things that we hate the sight of, that we don't want to look at and that we sometimes feel there's no way God can recover me or restore me from this. There's no way God can help me through this. Lord, we want to accept and believe that you are a good, 
and loving God who is miraculously able to recreate us as your own masterpiece. Father, we confess at times that we don't cooperate. We don't have faith. We don't believe. We don't submit. We don't flow with your restoration work. So Lord, I want to pray for all of us here today that as we reflect, firstly, would we believe, yes, you can restore me. You can renew me. Yes, Lord, we want to confess that today. Secondly, we want to say, Lord, we accept that it doesn't happen overnight. We accept that it's going to take time. And finally, Lord, we want to say, Lord Jesus, we want it. We want your restoration work. We want your renewal. We want new life and new creation in you. We want to be the best version of ourselves that we can be, but Lord, we know that's something that we haven't even thought about or dreamt about because of what your word says. So we thank you, Lord, for the gift of your spirit that even causes us not only to be renewed, but to actually want to, to cooperate, to do your will. So Father, we say, come to us, help us, Lord, renew us, renew your works in our day, and restore us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.